Ladies and gentlemen, this is Book Music. I am Tosh. And I'm Kimley. And each episode, we focus on a particular specific book about music. It could be a music biography. It could be a memoir from a musician. Something to do with music history. Something to do with music and book. Book and music. Therefore, that's why we're... Um, or book music. <laughs> and today we have a subject matter that I'm very, very much interested in. Isn't that correct, Kimberly? Uh, I would say just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Well, I think it's quite large. <laughs> yes, I'm being uh, facetious. <laughs> so we're going to focus on a book called Happy Hour that focuses on the band, the Japanese band Shonen Knife's album called Happy Hour, made in 1998. And the author is Brooke. Makorko Okazaki, and she is also our guest today. So welcome, Brooke. Hi, Tosh. Hi, Kim Lee. Thank you so much for having me here, and um, I'm really excited to talk about all things Shonen Knife, uh, food and rock and roll in Japan with y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Brooke, I'm really curious. What is your introduction to Japan and Japanese pop culture? Uh, what, what was my personal uh, introduction to, to Japanese mm-hmm. pop culture? Well, geez, I think like a lot of people in my generation, I grew up watching anime. Uh-huh. And that was probably my first introduction to uh, J, J-pop culture. Um, but uh, And Shonen Knife kind of ties into that because uh, when I was a kid, I was really into the Powerpuff Girls. Oh. And I remember seeing... Uh, it was a you know, promotion on Cartoon Network for Powerpuff Girls, but the music was by Shonen Knife. Oh. And I was just like, wow, who is this band? They're so cool. Because I was a bass player. I played classical bass since I was 10 years old. Oh. But I really wanted to get into rock and roll, too. Rock is played classical, but rock is what I would listen to. That's, that's still the case, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just thinking, these these women are badasses, and <laughs> who are they? And this is before the internet really mm-hmm. was robust. So it was pretty challenging to find information about Shonen Knife until a couple of years later when I uh, made it there uh, as a as a foreign exchange student. So Shonen Knife led you to Japan. You studied Japanese, I presume. Yeah, Shonen Knife. Um, and anime in general, <laughs> to be honest, uh, it led me to study uh, Japanese language uh, at the University of Oklahoma, uh-huh. and I uh, did a study abroad while I was there in Kyoto. Okay, and, uh, okay. Kyoto, uh, those of you that know Japan know that Kyoto is uh, in the same sort of vicinity as Osaka, Shonen Knife's hometown. Yes. And so I was able to, you know, go to Osaka and try to try to find. Shonen Knife play performances, so uh, I usually got lost in Osaka because, again, this was the eight. This was before smartphones or anything like that. And, mm-hmm. uh, it was a little bit of tricky for someone with very rudimentary Japanese, <laughs> <laughs> but lots of adventures, lots of adventures, and lots of eating, definitely. Yeah, food is very interesting in Japan. Mm-hmm. So that's a big part of your book. I mean, actually, Tosh didn't mention that you have a subtitle to your book, which is Food, Gender, Rock and Roll. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about what the focus is on food here. I mean, you know, you said uh, something about food isn't always just food mm-hmm. in the book. 
Um, so that was a big focus for you in this book. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, something um, I think we anyone who listens to Shonen Knife for any length of time will realize they have a heck of a lot of songs about food. At least 40. <laughs> There's probably some songs that I missed or some songs that you know are debatably about food. Um, can you eat a jellyfish? Yes. Is it a food? I'm not 100% sure it's a food. <laughs> it is eaten in Japan. Um, but uh, just, you know, the wide variety of songs they have about food was something that really struck me. In fact, when I was writing this book, I was like, ah, I want to eat cake. Right? I want to <laughs> go eat some ramen. Um, so I was wondering, I was thinking about it. I'm like, why do they have so many songs about food? And I don't know about you, but I always associated, I mean, I, I love food. I like eating. I like trying out new foods. But food for me always has an association also with, um, you know, home, safety. Um, my grandmother in particular, who the book is dedicated to, um, was, you know, just one of those natural cooks that could make a delicious meal out of just about anything. Mm. Um, and so food has a really you know, important symbolic value to me. And I think it has an important symbolic value to a lot of people. We have things like, you know, mother's home cooking and things like that. But also there's a lot of um, important symbols in terms of food and nationalism too, mm -hmm. um, where, you know, there's, there's national sushi, you know, you know, sushi competitions or, you know, we have Iron Chef and mm -hmm. all the spinoffs that have come from that. And, you know, French cuisine and Italian cuisine and uh, these different kinds of ways that food takes on uh, extra meanings. So even though when we eat something, um, I think it's important to remember that it's not, we're, we're eating for nourishment, but it also has a lot of symbolic value and a lot of different connections to different places and um, people that we may or may not think about all the yeah. time, but are always there. When I first went to, I, I, as I mentioned to you before we were, were taping this, you know, my wife is Japanese. And I went, when I first went to Japan in 1989, the first thing that made an impression on me was food. Because mm -hmm. uh, at the time I thought, wow, this is really strange food, one. And two, how food is such a sociable activity in mm -hmm. Japan. And um, like, for instance, when I invited my in-laws to come to uh, America, Los Angeles, I took them all out for a Mexican meal because that's oh. in Los Angeles, it's very sort of, you know, be in a funny yeah. way, the most American Los Angeles type of dishes. And I was impressed. So they each ordered a separate dish. You know, they all made sure they mm -hmm. ordered separate things. And then immediately when the dishes came, they immediately put all the dishes in the center of the table. Mm -hmm. And we, which means we are going to share all this. Mm -hmm. And my first thought is, I never share my plate with anybody. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear you say that. That is the exact same experience I had with my in-laws at first. Yeah. I was like, I was like, I want my own. I ordered this. This is mine. <laughs> no, it's not yours. It's for everybody when you order it. <laughs> so that was the first lesson about um, Japanese culture, mm -hmm. that it's a culture where you share and yeah. participate in sharing. Um, so I had to get rid of that greedy ownership issue right away. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so the, so I think for any foreigner 
or any visitor to Japan, I think the first thing they notice if they're with other Japanese people, as well as just walking down the street, how visual and how important mm-hmm. food is to that culture. Oh my gosh, it's so important. There's, you know, you probably have seen the the restaurants that have all the plastic food oh, yeah. on display. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they have those in Los Angeles here, oh. in the Japanese restaurants here. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, so that's really important. And oh my gosh, uh, just turn on the television. Mm-hmm. Every time I turned on the television, they were trying the the people on there were trying some new food, or they have they have food eating competitions, and you know it's just it's inescapable. Anytime I turned on the television, at least one channel had something about food on there. Yeah, and even if you're like a Western, you don't eat Japanese food, you can always have that mashed potato sandwich on white bread. Yeah. <laughs> God. That appealed to me greatly at the time. <laughs> now, is this a long, I mean, has this always been part of Japanese culture, this sort of obsession with food? Because it's, it's become more so here, mm-hmm. I would say, in the States in the last maybe 15, 20 years. We've gotten a lot more, you know, TV mm-hmm. shows about food and, and food eating contests and stuff. But yeah. it sounds like this is been the case in japan for a longer amount of time well true? i think food's always been an important part of japanese culture obviously um rice especially as mm-hmm. I, I said in the book rice is the word for rice gohan is synonymous with having breakfast lunch or dinner like it's mm-hmm. it's meal mm-hmm. um i think a lot of different sort of relationships with food in japan changed first in the meiji period when japan first opened to the west and started sort of incorporating Western um, modernized technologies and culture. And then really 1950s in the post-war era, but especially like Tosh was saying, the 1980s with the economic bubble, the just like the go-go bubble uh, era with all the money and decadence saw a huge import in um, different kinds of cuisine into Japan, especially I think where uh, it really became, especially in particular Tokyo, uh, sort of doing different things with different kinds of uh, foreign cuisines became really, really, you know, high culture in a lot of respects. Yeah, all food became Japanized to me. Even if I go to like American type of diner, Mm -hmm. it's immediately Japanese food to me. You know, like our pastry shops, which are sort of based on French pastries. It mm-hmm. becomes a totally Japanese identity yeah. for me. Yeah, no, it's it's so fascinating. That's part of what I wanted to get at in this book, too, is that food and music both have what I call this transnational aspect where um, elements of culture, say, say the pastries, are imported into Japan, um, but they're transformed in certain ways that mm-hmm. are, are made uh, more Japanese. For example, you might have a, you know, a sweet bun that's... that's that's almost British even, but yeah. you put um, put red bean paste in the sweet bun, and now it's it's an onpan or a, a Japanese Japanese uh, sweet red bean paste bun. And nowadays, sometimes I bet I bet especially in LA, you'll see um, convenience stores or supermarkets with onpan or melon yes. melon pan melon breads and sort of these Japanese pastries that are being shipped back to yeah. sort of the the euros. Anglo-centric countries. Mm-hmm. Um, to this, the same with sushi as well. And music also, you have, say, for example, you know, you have rock and roll 
coming mostly out of the United States, being imported to Japan, and now nowadays um, rock from all over the world is coming and circulating through the internet, and yeah. you have you know things like baby metal taking yeah. off in the states, uh, as well as you know, of course, Shonen Knife has a large uh, fan community abroad as well. Yeah, is Shonen Knife more better known outside of Japan than in Japan, or about the same, or what is their reputation in Japan? They're known because they've, they've been around forever. Yes. Um, they're very long lived in terms of the rock and roll scene, but they're not ever, they've never been, you know, like huge, uh, you know, hugely known. Right. Uh, I would say right now, I think their reputation is probably bigger outside of Japan than it is in Japan. Right. Um, simply because they've, put so much effort into touring a yeah. lot um, pre, pre-pandemic age. Um, and they've made a real effort to sing, uh, make do recordings in English. And that, that was really happy hour was really a turning point for that where they're like, mm-hmm. it's in English before that, but happy hour was a really major, I think, English language production. Was that the first album they did in both languages? Like separate releases and recordings in both languages? I can't remember off the top of my head. Right now. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, uh, but it is, it is significant that it's one that does have a lot of uh, both English and Japanese versions. Right. Yeah. Of, of all the Shonen Knife albums, you know, the focus on the book is on Happy Hour, mm-hmm. um, which oddly enough, Happy Hour is not that easy to find in the United States right yeah. now. Yeah. Even on streaming. You can't find it on a streaming service except for YouTube. Yeah, it's not on Spotify. I don't know why it's not on Spotify, actually. I like, I like that you chose the most obscure album <laughs> and made it your book. I really appreciate that. Well, it seems to be out of print. I didn't, couldn't find it on CD either, except you. Why did you do Happy Hour as an album for you? Why, why is that the focus? Yeah, a lot of people ask me that they're right. Why not Let's Knife or Yama no Achan or something? And the main reason was because I wanted to take this uh, emphasis on food and like explore that. And mm-hmm. Happy Hour is simply, uh, you can guess by the, the name yeah. Happy Hour, it's, it's got a lot of uh, food songs in it, that, um, the most of all the albums. So I thought that was the best one to look at. I also love the album cover, um, yes. which is by uh, Nara Yoshitomo, who, who um, was not so well known at the time of the cover design, but later went on to become a really big artist in the Japanese sort of pop art scene. In Los Angeles right now, there's a huge uh, exhibit of his work. Oh, I'm so jealous. I still haven't been to his like museum or exhibit yeah. or anything yet. It's nothing can go to the show right now. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but there is a, there is a, there is no, technically. I think it's opening so, in just a few days. A few days. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I was watching a video about it, and they actually even have a wall of all of like his favorite music, and they have a playlist. So he's very connected to music. Mm-hmm. So you can see that why he would you know wanted to do the cover for them. Yeah, he actually he actually approached them. Yeah, Did yeah, I was surprised by that too. He approached them at a show and asked them if he want like in England because he was living in England at the time. Uh-huh. And asked if you if they're like, hey, you need a cover design? And Malco was like, sure, um, let's nice. be in touch. Yeah, I don't know why. I I couldn't get to the bottom of um, why there were two cover designs. And unfortunately for the book, I wasn't able to um, contact uh, Nari directly. 
Uh, oh, is that why it's not on the cover? Because that's very unusual for a third Yeah, cover. that was it's one of the, the album problems. cover on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of the, uh, the sort of the main series of, of 33 and the third usually has the album cover. Mm-hmm. Japan 33 and the thirds have been a little bit different um, because copyright works differently in Japan. For, mm. for uh, And then um, I was talking to the American holders of the copyright and it was... Uh, it was beyond my budgetary means to get the copy oh, yeah, <laughs> for, yeah. for the cover, but I was able to get a sketch from uh, MoMA of the a rough sketch of the cover design in there, which is in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting to see where he started and if you have the yeah. album cover where where he wound up with it. Now, do you know why there were separate covers for the English version and the Japanese? Because they're quite similar, but yeah. I don't different. know why, but, um, <laughs> but I'm. It gave me more fodder to talk about, which was sure. um, But sometimes I was like, okay, I have to remember. I have to keep these straight. Which ones? Which? Maybe he got more money for doing the uh, two uh, extra illustrations. That's, that's <laughs> very much a possibility. So, it, so, he, so he did both covers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. He he may have like as the artist insisted on for the for the uh, is it for the American or British releases mm-hmm. you might insist it on using that for whatever reason you know like yeah i imagine there's something to do with copyright uh-huh. and um, agreements with the record the different record distribution companies that's just yeah. a hypothesis yeah but so you so you don't know why happy hour is not that easily available anymore or you don't know it seems like a lot of their albums are tough to find i mean mm-hmm. they're so yeah. prolific that there is a lot out there that's easy to find but there's a lot that isn't yeah, and I mentioned that like even nowadays with the internet and stuff, it's not easy to no. get some of the albums, um, uh, which is kind of I think because because they've always remained sort of right under the radar. Like they're popular enough that people mm-hmm. and fans are they have some super devoted fans out there, both in Japan and abroad. But um, they've never had like this mass saturation uh of some some other some other bands that uh you might try to think of probably the closest contemporaries to shonen knife like in japan would be like shoya and princess princess or mm-hmm. maybe over here the bangles the go-go's would be comparable right. um but they and they've also shonen knife bounced around with different record labels as well yeah um, I didn't realize that they'd been around so long. I didn't know that they had formed in 1981. Yeah. They've been around forever. What do you yeah. think has, explains their longevity? I mean, it's pretty impressive. I only know them, uh, not through their listening to their music, but basically um, just seeing their name show up in like punk rock shows in Los Angeles when they mm-hmm. were touring. Because um, I always say it's like Show and Knife from Osaka, Japan. or And that's the first time I ever... Um, obtain knowledge about them. When I was in Japan in 89, I don't think I was aware of them. I mean, when I go to a record mm-hmm. store, you know, that you're, you're totally confronted by J-pop everywhere. Like yeah. Princess Princess was, you know, their their names and faces showed up on and on again. But mm-hmm. Shonen Knife was always in sort of the punk rock Japanese section. It was a little bit yeah. smaller, you know, you have to yeah. look for it. It's not yeah. obvious. Even um, when I went and bought, I bought their uh, 2019 Sweet Candy Power at Tower Record, which still exists in Tokyo. Yes, um, I had to. I went. I went on the release day and had to had to sort of hunt for it, um, which I was surprised by. Um, but thinking back uh, to Kimley's question, 
about why Shana Knife is so has been able to sustain um, their careers so long. A lot of it has to do with uh, first uh, Naoko Yamano Naoko, the lead singer and guitar player and um, main main uh, you know composer for the band nowadays is just you know really dedicated herself to the band and you know playing rock and roll um i think she really enjoys you know um performing and you know bringing some joy to to the audience members um the other thing i think that has contributed to their longevity is uh this combination of the cute, cute and cool mm, is yeah, how, how, I, how I talk about it in, in the book, the kawaii and kakkoi. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about how kawaii or cuteness is really um, associated with, you know, girls mm-hmm. um, or, you know, cute, cute animals or babies. Um, and kakkoi is usually associated with, uh, with sort of guys, uh, more manliness kind of, um, images but it's not necessarily limited to men or uh or, or such so you i think the sort of punk aspect of shonen knife is their kakoi mm-hmm. and then um the fact that they sing songs about animals and food and um are is, is part of their kawaii component and i think they are in some ways you know addressing sort of stereotypes about um Asian women in general in, in um, the United States and in, you know, uh, other places abroad about um, Asian women being tiny, Asian women being cute or kind mm. or demure. And I think their music, even though um, it's not overtly political, I think the very fact that they're playing punk rock or playing these, you know, electric and loud instruments, um, sometimes in overdrive, um, sometimes screaming lyrics mm-hmm. is, it's, it's, it's this contrast um, and sort of, you know, way of surprising audience members that might not have expected that from, mm-hmm. from these people. Right. And I think that's really important. Yeah. I always love um, when you have a juxtaposition of these two incongruent components, you know, when you kind of mix soft and tough and masculine, feminine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because you get such a great tension between that, you know, and, and it makes people kind of look at each one of those things and reassess them. And yeah. uh, I think they do that. And, you know, I don't feel like their cuteness has any irony to it. It's not, yeah. you know, it's not saccharine cute, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, they just seem like they're decent people, <laughs> you know, there's not, they're not threatening in one way, but then in another way they are because they're pushing your, you know, perceptions about what they could be. Yeah, that's it, that's really interesting. You know, like the whole cute culture in Japan really sort of bend my brains out. I mean, it was it's <laughs> especially when you're you're visiting Japan because the cute thing is really really prominent and really important. And you know, and as a you know as a sort of a, as a you know as a Westerner or you know just a guy guy Westerner, you think there must be something really behind this cuteness. There's something you know profound about cute and sometimes there isn't sometimes things are what it is and it's you know i i tore, I, I tend to overanalyze what <laughs> i see in japan a lot i think you're right kimley about um there's not really an, an the irony aspect to it at least not in the way we we talk about irony in english language it, it, it's missing and i think they're really the band is really genuine about both their cuteness and their coolness and think about what you just said tosh um, the 
sort of cute saturation in Japan. Um, people familiar with the idol system, especially like AKB48, um, yeah. very much like cute as a media tool, tool for marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, what's it? I mentioned Christine Yana's book on Hello Kitty in, uh, in my own writing. Mm-hmm. And she really dissects Hello Kitty, which is kind of the epitome of Japanese cute mm-hmm. symbols in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And how, she talks about how Hello Kitty can be a sort of multivalent symbol. Like, yeah, Hello Kitty's cute. I grew up, you know, I just, when I was a kid, I'd like, oh, a Hello Kitty pencil, yeah. Mm-hmm. But also, um, you know, later on, wearing Hello Kitty in my 20s and stuff. Yes, right. As, as sort of a way of being like reclaiming that it's okay to be girly and um, an adult and a, a, a budding adult at least at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, it's not that I don't have to choose between being cute or cool or masculine or feminine. I can be both at once. And I think that's part of why Shonen Knife is so attractive. Um, to listeners. Oh, you know, so you re- what I find unique about Show and Knife, I could be totally wrong. Every Japanese band, especially J-pop bands, or even K-pop bands, of course, the marketing, you know, the, mm-hmm. you, you can buy like everything from notebooks to pencils. I'm sure there's, there, there's princess, princess notebooks, pencils, mm-hmm. Back in the day, yeah. you know, special publication magazines, but Show mm-hmm. and Knife does not have that type of surroundings. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. Well, that's really interesting. I was just talking to some people on um, I'm of the Facebook web page, and we were talking about like how the heck do they even make a living? Because you know, you go to their shows; they tour like they were touring like mad for a while. Basically, in 2019, they did this massive Europe, Australia, American tour. But you know, you go to the shows, and it's they're punk shows. They're like you know. Mm-hmm. usually. I think I paid maybe $25, $30 for a show in Brooklyn, which is not that much. Mm -hmm. Um, So they got a lot of, uh, we were thinking maybe it's the merchandise. Mm -hmm. And um, especially lately, Nalika has been working on merchandise to help shore up the cost of not playing shows. So I did get some Shonen Knife face masks uh, when I was in Japan. (laughs) One of those. (laughs) So that was pretty, pretty great. I able to show off the Shonen Knife. But it's all, you know, DIY, do it yourself. Um, And I think that's the really important aspect that you're sort of getting at that. This is all, they're doing it all themselves. Nalco does a lot of the designs for the, the merchandise. She designed my book cover even. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think that component and not like sort of the mass marketed, find it everywhere component is what really sets them apart. And why I argue that they are punk, even mm-hmm. if not all their songs sound like punk rock, their, their heart, their spirit is, is punk. Yeah, the music really kind of goes all over the place. I mean, some songs are super pop and then some are definitely more punk and um, they really seem to explore a wide range of music types. Yeah, and that's why, like, I think, you know, a lot of people, they're always compared to the Ramones, which, you know, for good reason. They did a Ramones cover album. They toured with uh, Last Living Ramone. Um, And they, yeah, there's components of the Ramones that are, uh, very evident in Shonen Knife's music, but they're really, I think, way more diverse and experimental than the Ramones ever were. 
I agree. It, it, to me, they sound a little bit like the uh, not sound like they they remind me of the buzzcocks a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something you know, like Pete Shelley, who's the what the world the lead songwriter of the buzzcocks. You know, this sort of the, the lyrics and this sort of the observation of what's in front of them. And I I, I feel like that Shelley Knife really captures what they see and what they feel and what they taste. That's what I get hearing, you know, Happy Hour album. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that's what um, Naoko is always going for is like she, um, I think that's part of why she writes about food so much is that food is uh, a part of their everyday life and it means a lot to them. And uh, because of that, it's just an actual topic for songs versus say something that you know, talking about heartbreak or, you know, being in unrequited love is, is not something that, like, I mean, I'm sure everyone's mm. had experiences with that, but it's not something that is part of the everyday way of being. The, the quotid, Like making the quotidian, elevating the quotidian is what Shonen Knife does. And that's what I, mm-hmm. I think is so great. I agree. And it's interesting because you do also kind of get into a little bit about sort of the dark side of food, about women's obsession with their weight, and then mm-hmm. also kind of the fact that, you know, like the, the top chefs in Japan and here as well tend to be men while women do the home cooking. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of something you discuss a little bit in the book as well. Yeah, so there's definitely, I think, a gendered aspect to food too. And that's why uh, gender is part of that subtitle. I know it might turn off a couple fans um, who are worried about, uh, you know, my my feminist readings of Shonen Knife. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I fall into that sort yeah. of um, category so much, and I, I don't think um, that's what the band was going for either. I, what I think is that it is, it's all nuanced, and mm-hmm. we can't forget that these things, these inequalities, still exist. Um, yeah. That, that there's something about food in relation to gender, especially, and how it's portrayed mm-hmm. that matters. Your book is so in-depth because, I mean, it's about show and knife and it's about happy hour, of course. But reading the book, I was pleasantly surprised and really happy that it really does cover Japan or Japanese culture or aesthetics as well. And not in a... Um, in an obvious manner to me. I mean, you talk about the food, the gender, you know, the gender issues of the food in that world. But he also, you know, you brought the term, which I never heard before, uh, Jose, Jose rock uh, mm-hmm. bands or Jose rock. That is your term that you you brought, right? Or you made up or? Yeah. Can you explain what Jose band means to you? Oh, sure. Well, thank you so much for your kind words, Tosh. Yeah, this, um, this book was a little bit of an experiment for both me and for uh, 33 and a Third, because most 33 and a Third books you know, focus solely on the album and the nitty gritty of an album. I really wanted to expand out and talk. Of course, I, I wanted to focus on Shonen Knife, and I love Shonen Knife, mm-hmm. but I thought there's just so much more to talk about here. They're not, their music means more than just this album. It's, it's this whole, you know, it's this whole universe uh, that is, has all these different connecting parts to it that I wanted to bring out to my readers. So I'm glad you appreciated that. Um, and you, and you do so. Of, thank you. Uh, Jose Rock, yeah. So a lot of times, um, historically, Japanese uh, rock bands with only female musicians and have been called Garu's Band mm-hmm. or girls' bands. 
And I argue that um, even though uh, this is sort of, you know, the marketing genre, girls bands, that it's not really accurate for a lot of different reasons. First off, a lot of these performers aren't girls anymore. They're women. Mm-hmm. And I think calling them girls, girls bands in a way makes it seem like their music is less serious yeah. than just rock um, or roku. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, I think girls band kind of uh, has has this um, aura of yeah cutesiness, not being serious, being you know sort of more associated, more closely associated with idol culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and the bands I wanted to talk about, and the musicians I wanted to talk about in this book, were not that. They were people um, who. Uh, were women who were actively making music sometimes um, early on, you know, Misora Hibari is, you know, one of the greats of um, music, uh, basic music in general in Japan in the 20th century. I discovered her in Japan. I, I like to talk about her and, you know, so yeah, she's a, fa- I mean, she's, um, doesn't take the off subject matter, but she, to me, she seems to be sort of not sort of the Judy Garland of Japan. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that, is that would that be an accurate description? That's what uh, Michael Michael Bordash in his book uh, Sayonara Narita Sayonara Nippon um, uh, was a geopolitical prehistory of J-pop or something. Um, mm-hmm. He he compares her to like uh, it's like Judy Garland, Elvis, and somebody else all rolled into one. Yes, and she's she's just that big like. Uh, to the point, um, just last year they made an uh, animatronic version of Misori Hibari. Wow! Uh, and she was the animatronic version. They were gonna. They were thinking about doing um, a hologram performance with her too. Nice. Uh, and she performed a song by uh, one of the the main sort of music music lyricists for uh, AKB48 as well. Wow. Um, she performed a new song. She's still, you know, she'll never die. She'll never die. She's wowing crowds still today, and she made such How a huge she? impact. Well, she she passed, but oh, um, okay. her was, spirit lives on. <laughs> I was there when she died, and uh, oh, I mean, wow. the, the media, the media, not in her home, but mm-hmm. in the country, uh, and it was such a. I mean, you couldn't avoid. I mean, you could not avoid the news, no matter where you are, who you are, or language. But even before that, I was aware of her presence because. She is, she is like Judy Garland or Elvis Presley in, 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 uh, in American culture and Western culture. And the, you know, the, the amount of music she has made or albums mm-hmm. she's released and recordings and TV appearances. And she, like Judy Garland, she was a child actress yeah. singer as well. So mm-hmm. she just has decades of... Um, yeah, and she's saying everything. She's saying boogie woogie. She's mm-hmm. saying rockabilly. She sang Inca was what she became really known for later in her career. Yes. Uh, Inca is like more traditional, um, popular musics. Uh, and so she just did it all. Um, and I think she really set the stage for a lot of strong women performers and musicians coming up through the later decades, including um, some, of the, some of the rock and roll bands of the 60s, late 60s, mm-hmm. and then some of the really you know, cool experimental bands of the 70s, 80s, yeah. and, and you know, uh, even later with Shonen Knife, or in the Shonen Knife in the early 80s, and um, stuff that have just you know, really flourished in the 2000s, in the 21st century. 
so like in the West, like a lot of rock and roll figures have to come or be confronted by Elvis Presley in some manner mm -hmm. or fashion. In Japan, do Japanese musicians, both female and male, do they have to not confront her, but they have to acknowledge her as, the, as like a very strong presence in their past, musically mm. speaking, or is it totally a different generation and not important? Yes, yeah, a them? different generation at this mm. point. But um, I think her presence is still felt a lot of times, you know, through these TV specials mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, things like that. I'm trying to think of who, who's sort of like, Really, the idol management systems are probably the most powerful yes. sort of influence still right now. Your your whole section on Josie Rock and its early history, I found a really fascinating read for me. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm very much so. I mean, because I very rarely, I sort of knew about it from my wife, who's, like I mentioned, Japanese and you know does music. She's really, she, she has a fascination with this period of, of, of Japanese rock and roll and pop music and Anka. So oh, I get that from her, but of course, it's there's really not that much literature in English yeah. on that subject matter. And your, and your book is <laughs> and your book is one of the first books, seriously that that talks about what I'm interested in. Oh, I think, yeah, I was surprised when I was doing research for this. I was like, I first off, I couldn't believe there wasn't a book about like you know Shonen Knife already, except the book that they published um, in in. Uh, at the same time as their their happy hour promotion, yes. Um, so I was really I was kind of surprised by that. And it's really piecemeal the music, especially music by uh, women women uh, in Japan is not much written in English. And even you know I read a lot of books about women in rock. It's, mm -hmm. it's become pretty hip to write about women in rock lately. Mm -hmm. um, but almost none of the English language books mention anything outside of America. Britain, Great Britain. Yeah, you know, we, there's a language fear. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I also like French pop music as well and, you know, mm -hmm. French music history. And there's definitely a fear for English-speaking people, specifically American, specifically from Los Angeles, <laughs> specifically from Hollywood, Los Angeles, California. Um, the sort of fear of not knowing the language and therefore they can't come to terms with it. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have that problem personally, but uh, I know, you know, I know, I know there is a sort of a, you know, if they can't identify with it, they mm -hmm. can't deal with it for some reason. And that's so interesting because one of the things about Show Night, like I said, I think they have maybe greater popularity abroad yes. than they do at home now. There's something about their music um, that does sort of transcend those those kinds of barriers. Food songs. I mean, songs yeah. about food. Can't Some people may never experience heartache or loss, but they all experience food. <laughs> well, I mean, they also sing a lot in English, and I think that also yeah. helps. And I'm, I'm wondering, um, are the English albums available in Japan? Do people collect those as well? Is, is English widely spoken in Japan? I don't know. Well, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing. English is taught um, from middle school on in Japan as a required class. Um, so it's, it's pretty well known, you know, all the traffic signs are in English and Japanese. Um, and most people can get, could get by, I think, in English, especially, you know, uh, sort of the younger generations. Right. Uh, and then Shonen Knife in particular, writing 
you know, I think they always, they always had some English components in, in their music. Usually it was pretty common and it's common across a lot of rock and roll to yeah. incorporate a couple, drop a couple of words here and there for, <laughs> for flavor. Um, but Naoko, especially, you know, really uh, strong English skills have allowed them to, you know, make ways into other parts of, of, of the world. Is it seen as sort of a bit of a cachet? Um, it's, I don't know, I wouldn't say it's a cachet. There have been arguments made that English suits rock and roll better. So yeah, that's not that really too. I don't really true. believe it, but... Okay. Um, but their albums, like, for example, um, they didn't record Japanese tracks for some of their most recent albums. Like, um, oh. like I think Adventure Overdrive, Sweet Candy Power, don't have any Japanese language tracks on them. So all those albums are available in Japan, but it's only the English language track. And I have to add, in my experience, I never, I never want to generalize, but from my experience, as a music buyer or buying music, mm-hmm. there's no other better place than Japan in buying music. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, the, the inventory is like totally out of control and crazy. And definitely there's no, uh, you can get anything, what, Overall, you can get anything you want in Japan, whatever mm-hmm. it is. But in music, um, I was introduced to French pop music being in Japan, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. I couldn't get that in Los Angeles, even though it's a music city. Uh, and, you know, same was like Brazilian music, music from Africa. And even like the most obscure R&B artists will get like a Japanese reissue on CD. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, you know, I don't know if Japanese... Uh, listeners, consumers are just really open to different types of music or very specialized in what they like. But it's whatever you want in music, you can find you can find it, including a weird showing knife made in Los Angeles or made in America album that's a limited edition of 50. Somehow 25 copies will end up in yeah. Japan. <laughs> yeah, no, I think there's a lot of um sort of audiophilia in Japan is yeah. a different level than in America for most yeah. people. Um, yeah. And that, you know, is all connected to, I think, you know, if you think all the way back to sort of the beginnings of Sony and mm-hmm. stereo culture and the Walkman and all this sort of like really, you know, caring about the quality of yeah. your music playback devices has made for a really um you know, they have tons of music journals, too, and, you know, yes. uh, for different fans. Um, so being really devoted to your music, uh, whatever your, your mm. taste is, is something that's um, important in Japan. Uh, and like I said, like, they still have Tower of Records in Japan. I bought, uh, I went shopping there. I went shopping at Her Majesty's Vinyl. HMV, um, yes. Yeah. And so there's still a robust you know, uh, tangible music culture in Japan that, that I, I like. You also mentioned, like, did, did you shop at Tower Shibuya or the Shinjuku or some of the... I, 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 I was in Shinjuku, so I live in Shinjuku, so Shinjuku is my, my place. Okay, I've been there many times. Ooh. And, um, but each, you know, like the Shibuya uh, t- uh, Tower Records, uh, has it's like six or seven floors. Yeah. Uh, it changes over time, but it's very interesting to me that there's J-pop, then there's Western music, and they mm-hmm. do not mix in yeah. 
a record store, how they organize their record store. Show and Knife and maybe like YMO, Yellow Magic Orchestra, you may mm. very well find that in the Western section, very possible. Yeah, because it's Western style. Yes, but J-pop stuff, and it's like a totally different planet from Western. Yeah, you know. that was why I had trouble finding Sweet Candy Power. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you were in the wrong section. I was like, well, why isn't it here? They, did mm-hmm. they sell out? Yeah, I, I tend to, when I go to a, like a big record store like Tower Records or HMV in Japan, I have to rethink my whole category organization brain into something different. Mm-hmm. In fact, in, in, in for the Western artists, you know, for American and British rock and roll, it's not advertised by the last name. It's advertised usually by the first name. Oh, yeah, yeah. So David Bowie is not under Bowie. It's under David. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real pain, but... <laughs> <laughs> that twisted my brain so much, I'm still hurting. I'm still feeling the pain of... It's a, I, could, I could spend hours just going through... Uh, because they have what's it in the Shinjuku Tower Records? They have a whole floor of just used vinyl. Yes, I've been there, like, top floor. I just like would dig through there for hours if I had yes. the time. I love uh, that place so much. You guys are making me jealous. Yeah. <laughs> Someday we'll be able to go back and yeah. go to record stores again. Yes, I love It'll that. <laughs> now you just got back from Japan. Were you working on this? book that I saw that you're working on a Wagner in Japan book? Yeah, like well, I got, <laughs> I hope no one from Japan Foundation, no, Japan Foundation people can be listening to. So I got a foundation grant to work on uh, the reception of Wagner in Japan, which is also a political can of worms. Uh, ah. uh, but at the same time, I was working on um, the Shonen Knife book, and the Shonen Knife book was, was a little bit more... Um, well, more pleasurable to work on and also, um, you know, shorter. So I, I wound uh, up finishing it earlier. That's fascinating. Wagner in Japan, you know? Yeah, no, I want to read that. In our show, Book Music, we have done Show and Knife, what we're doing now, and we have done an episode on Wagner. Oh, my gosh. We read Alex Ross's book oh, that came out yeah. a few months ago. Oh, I'm, I'm going to have to listen to that episode. <laughs> Did you talk to Alex? No. No, unfortunately we did not. <laughs> we will next time hopefully, but that book is a that's a fascinating book. Yeah, it's a honker. So yeah, actually his book is is an inspiration for me. I'm like, okay, he took a good ten years. So if I can get this done in ten years, it'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so is there a short knife Wagner connection that I'm missing? That something like that? <laughs> Yeah, that's quite a challenge. That would be that would be something. Uh, let's see if I, if I can think of anything I think you know you know Wagner one of the appeals for me in terms of Wagner is like his despite everything and there's mm-hmm. a lot of problems with Wagner That's what I I've think heard. His, his female lead characters are really strong uh-huh. really strong characters like especially Brunhilde mm-hmm. um, in the ring cycle and so if I was going to cite a connection, I think that's where I would cite it. Like these, mm. these female characters that are both feminine, but have this like underlying power to them um, that I think is not- notable. Do you see a, a relationship between like Wagner's operas, stage operas to say like Japanese no theater or the kabuki? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's some, com- uh, some common ground between both of those genres. Um, the no theater in terms of it being a kind of, uh, no is also a kind of total work of art that combines song and dance and mm-hmm. music and drama. Um, kabuki 
likewise. And then also, you know, Wagner was famous for that phrase, total work of art or Gesamtkunstwerk. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of no, also uh, Mishima, if you know Mishima Yukio, the author, he, he saw some connections between no and Wagner too. Which yeah. is, he uses no, uh, a no staging um, in his uh, silent film patriotism that's yes. totally totally accompanied by Wagner's Tristan mm -hmm. Isolde. It fits perfectly story. with this. Yeah, uh, it's it's strangely uh, uncanny. It's uncanny how how well it suits. You know, it's interesting. You you, bring, you know you bring up so much interesting stuff for me or for us. <laughs> yeah, Mishima is a writer who. Who I, I, I like him a lot. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan. Um, but, uh, but what's interesting about his take on Western culture, on one end, you know, he has a total, for Japan only, Japanese aesthetic only. Mm. But obviously, he's totally affected by um, yeah. outside of Japan. I mean, it's kind of amazing that he, that he had his own Japanese army that mm -hmm. he closed and dined, and, and, and that, but all the clothes were made in Paris. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so showing knife. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm trying to connect showing knife in this world somehow. So hold on, hold on to your horses. So showing knife, I think in a way embrace their Japanese ness, but in a sort of a bigger context that's outside of Japan, even. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think um, I make this point, especially. Uh, uh, when I was writing about their music video for Sweet Candy Power, the, the title track from their 2019 album, mm -hmm. um, Shonen Knife is, like Mishima, at once cosmopolitan mm -hmm. and very specifically Japanese. Mm -hmm. And in the Sweet Can Candy Power music video, like all of the, the sites that you see uh, Naoko and the other um, members at are um, sites, you know, really specific to Osaka that, People, people even like, you know, not Japanese or people even in Japan sometimes might not recognize all the sites in Osaka immediately. Yes. Um, so they're really, you know, tied to their hometown. They love, they're proud Osakans. Uh -huh. um, but they're also um, international punk rockers that tour yes. regularly. Um, and I think more than most any other Japanese Jose rock band around are the ones that are really known um, and have been like, you mm -hmm. know, they've been to, they've been in New York city, they've been to LA, but they've also been to tiny little towns in, you know, Texas, mm -hmm. Oklahoma, uh, you know, all, all over the place. So how important is Osaka, the city to show a knife? Oh, so it's there. It's um, the hometown for Naoko and Atsuko, mm -hmm. her sister, who are both uh, two founding, two of the, the original three founding members of Shonen Knife. Mm -hmm. And then um, the other current members, uh, Risa. Risa is from nearby Wakayama. Um, and then um, there's a lot of other bands like uh, in the area that I think look up to Shonen Knife, like. Um, um, Otopoke Viva, who I mentioned in the book, is from Kyoto, which is near. Next, next to Osaka, and I think um, uh, Naoko uh, mentioned she's like she actually mentioned me. She's like I think it's really important that we're from Osaka because we're not in Tokyo. We're not where the whole like idol system is really yes. established and really set up. Um, and because of that, they they've never you know they don't they don't have to deal with the idol system really in a, in the same way. 
Osaka and Tokyo. I I spend more time in Tokyo, and I've been to Osaka, you know, three or four times overnight mm-hmm. or a couple of days. And Osaka and Tokyo are very very different cities in mm-hmm. aesthetics. And Tokyo is definitely more media oriented and more like showbiz. I think. Yeah. Even their merchandise is more kind of refined and kind of what we think of Japanese minimalism. But Osaka mm-hmm. is very more street and more kind of uh, punk rock in a way to me. Yeah, I would agree with that. Something, well, because I've lived in both places for fair amounts of time. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that struck me the most when I moved to Osaka is like, oh, I don't have to dress up and wear heels and makeup when I go out. Side the house now. <laughs> yes, you're, you're in Osaka. I was like, this is awesome. I can wear jeans and a t-shirt, and it's fine. So there's a lot of there's a lot of um, sort of a more indie-minded bands coming from uh, that area, right? Or mm-hmm. more so than Tokyo, I think. Uh, or am I being generalizing? I, generalizing, but I think I think that's an accurate. I think that's an accurate assessment. I feel I feel like there's a lot. Uh, Maybe, maybe I would say I feel like Osaka is friendlier to the indie circuit. Yeah, interesting. And I also heard, and this is, I heard that Kyoto has a strong, or once, once they had a strong sort of experimental music, yeah, like music scene. Of, yeah. You know, um, I don't know if that's still the case, but I, I've been to Kyoto many times, and that seems to be a, an interesting juxtaposition of avant-garde music made in. You know, in Kyoto, what we think of Kyoto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Kyoto is, you know, this very traditional city. It's the ancient capital of Japan. All these ancient buildings that are still standing there because uh, it wasn't bombed by Americans or the Allied powers during the war. But it's it's interesting because Kyoto does have this really sort of like avant-garde aesthetic in yeah. it. Um, sort of, you know, like, like you were saying, kind of the modernist, modern minimalist style. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, very left leaning, mm-hmm. uh, politically in some respects, mm. um, too. So it's, it's it's that again that interesting juxtaposition between the ancient and sort of the the liberal avant garde that mm-hmm. is fascinating about that city. Was Happy Hour going back to show and I was Happy Hour recorded in 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 America as well as in Japan? Yeah, they um, part of some of the tracks were recorded in L.A. and some of the tracks were recorded in Osaka. Um, I think probably partially because Atsuko, I think, was already maybe residing in L.A. or right. going between L.A. and Japan at that point. This is going to sound strange, but I'm going to, I'm going to, try, to, I'm going to try to work this out with you guys, <laughs> with you women. The production, you know, the production of Happy Hour is really, really a, a good production. I like the way the textures are in, on mm-hmm. that album. A lot of Japanese music, uh, contemporary music, J-pop, to be more specific, is always very digital sounding to me, like mm-hmm. very flat. Uh, I find Japanese TV very flat compared to like mm-hmm. Japanese cinema from the 50s and yeah. 60s. Yeah. There's like a TV sort of flatness. And I find, um, and Kabuki, to be fair, is very flat to me. You know what I mean? Because you're you're in, you're sitting in the theater. A lot of things are happening, but everything is on the same plane, same dimension. Ah, uh, yeah, I see what you're talking about. So, so you know, so I always thought about that, and then listening to like a J-pop group or whatever, which I can't really listen to that much because the, the flatness, mm-hmm. the digital, it just it it it, it just sort of cancels out 
sounds to me. Shorter Knife has a very much of a textual recording method or whatever. And I just no, I was wondering if you ever thought about that or you think Shorter Knife thinks about like the difference between recording in in Los Angeles or America or Europe compared to Japan, like Japanese sound aesthetics. I find them different mm. in my in my opinion. Yeah, I can definitely see that. It's interesting that you use the word flat because there's a whole portion of um, the Nara chapter I cut about the super flat. Yes, I'm aware of them, yes. Murakami Takashi sort yeah. of idea that um, flatness is uh, in, in as the, a Japanese aesthetic that's evident in J-pop like, um, like anime and manga, but also goes back to things like Ikioe, Prince. Um, so I can see, yeah, and I can I can see what you're talking about there. I think maybe Shonen Knife, in terms of uh, the mixing production, well, first off, they go into the studio when they go in to record. They already have their songs down. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't write in the studio because they don't have the, the money to waste, right? Um, and the time to waste. So mm-hmm. I think maybe that that is a little bit different from some of the other groups you're yes. thinking of perhaps. And uh-huh. then um, also uh, by the time of happy hour, they're, you know, obviously thinking of an international listening audience mm-hmm. and even going back, like I love, I was listening to the Nina Tenoshiku and like Yamano Achan and uh, uh, burning farm, uh, just like those older, those early albums. And there's a roughness to those that, yeah, you don't get in recordings anymore. I don't know if that was because uh, it was more, you know, by the seat of your pants back then, mm-hmm. or, um, but it also adds to their charm too, I think. Very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Thinking about, sorry, thinking also about um, Happy Hour and basically sort of the 90s albums too. You know, they had toured uh, with uh, Nirvana in the early 90s. Uh-huh. Um, were associated with Mud Honey. Associated, I think they had a, they had a single release by Sub Pop. Uh-huh. So I'm sure some of that sort of Sub Pop sound was was influencing their productions as well at that point. Um, there's another band you mentioned already, uh, Oto Boke Beaver. Yeah. Uh, I heard their song. I heard Dirty Old Fart, which is yeah. Great. Um, what is can you- can you talk a little bit? I never heard of them until I read your book, and mm. I, you know, I saw some of their videos. Can you can you make some or have anything to comment on them? Oh yeah, man! Oh, Odoboke Beaver was like the treasure that I found in this research. Um, mm. I I don't know. Um, yeah, I hadn't heard of them before. I was just you know poking around. Um, they have. Uh, some of the members in Otaboke Biba were in the same um, music university music club as one of the former members of Shonen Knife. So that was like a connection. They had played, they have actually played with Shonen Knife a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, but Otaboke Biba is this um, really, you know, sort of new Jose rock punk noise, hardcore group out of Kyoto. Um, it has a lot of the same sort of elements that I think Shonen Knife has only um, blown blown up to bigger, more extreme proportions, mm-hmm. especially in terms of the cute and the cool. Um, Otoboki Beaver, the members wear these sort of like floral, vibrant 1960s style dresses usually when they play. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they have some some little dance routines they do but uh, there's also a lot of screaming a lot of really really loud thrashing mm-hmm. um and there's songs like dirty old fart is waiting for my reaction or um the one i i write about in the book that i just dig is uh after making love with me, you, you eat your wife's meal. Um, <laughs> and just uh, the way they take apart, um, the way they take apart ideas of femininity and masculinity in their music, um, not necessarily consciously, mm-hmm. um, but it's just, it's just so amazing. And I think they're, I think, I hope they're going to be uh, the next big theme. Um, they were supposed to do uh, South by Southwest last year. They're mm-hmm. supposed to go on this huge European tour. And, you know, everything's been put on hold. Right. So if, if they can just hang on a little bit longer, I think yeah. I think really exciting things are going to happen. Well, since 10 o'clock this morning, uh, Oto Boke Beaver is really, really important to me. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that um, Shonda Knife has really opened up uh, the arena for young women in Japan to form yeah. audiences? Uh, without a doubt. That's sort of, that's basically my argument in the last chapter of the book, that yeah. it's because of Shonda Knife and, you know, they've been slogging. They've, I guess I shouldn't say slogging, but yeah, you know, playing these very, you know, uncute, you know, dive bars and, um, live houses and you know the grueling you know grueling schedule of a tour in the United States is insane because the United States is so huge and wide yeah. and, and they're not youngsters anymore and I'm no sure I mean now those yeah they're not yeah 20 something single women there yeah amazing yeah that is just you know amazing to me that they they still do it and so I think yeah. like all the work that they've done um and, you know, just not giving up. And I think that's something else that's really valued in Japan is like, you know, ganbatte, ganbare is, is the word used, like keep going even if you're not um, feeling it. Like they have, they have kept going all these years through thick and thin, through different changes in members, through successes, through failures. Um, and they have just you know, been real role models for a lot of the groups out today, I think. And in fact, there's, I just saw a YouTube video with some, um, as like a, a little, you know, sort of one of those school of rock bands in Japan and mm-hmm. a, a mom or dad had taken a video of their daughters playing um, and their daughters played uh, some, some show riding the rocket. I was like, yeah, oh, you that in your playlist. Yeah, right? I was like, this is so cool. I don't talk about it in the book, but I'm like, I gotta put this in the playlist because yeah, everyone should right. should see this. Do you know of uh, Teriyama, Suji uh, Teriyama Suji? No. He's an interesting figure. He's like from the '60s and '70s. You know, oh. definitely in Mishima. He was a oh, theater cool. person. He was a playwright, theater person, uh, actor, oh, cool. and he's very he's very much a Shinjuku you know, 70s student rebellion. Oh, um, interesting. I'm looking him up right now. He's like... a really interesting person. You should look him up. He And also there's music involved. He, you know, he, he, there's a, oh, shoot, what's her name? Um, you know, he had a lot, a lot of the soundtracks to his theater pieces were done by bands or like really into sort of like psychedelic. Oh, cool. Rock, you know. And he's very sexual, and he's he's sort of like Fellini meets Fassbender meets uh, 
Oh, awesome. No theater. I don't, I don't know how to describe him. Oh, he's very Japanese, cool. but he's very avant-garde. Right. And, yeah. and a lot of great graphics come from him. You know, he did art. He's, he's sort of like the Jean Cocteau of, of Oh, of cool. Sorts. Yeah. But, but um, you know, he, he definitely knew Mishima. Uh, yeah. Though I'm sure they're politically, they're quite different. But, um, but he was sort of the key person of Bunk. When you think of Bunkard Japan, 70s, 60s, mm-hmm. Teriyama was the, um, the go-to person. Oh, yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking at him right now. I, yeah, the thing about movies, I don't know if you looked me up at all, but um, my other specialty, my other book is about Japanese kaiju. Yeah. So, I saw that. It's a little, <laughs> bit, a little bit different from Shonen Night. But... And Wagner. And Wagner is the serious thing. <laughs> Are you a Japanese professor here in the States? Is that um, I'm, a, I'm a music professor, but I, oh, I okay. do Japanese music and film music stuff, mostly in oh, opera. Okay. Oh, nice. You, do you actually, what you wrote about in your book, do you teach that in your class? Like I'm hoping to, yeah. When I teach, uh, when I get a chance to teach my Japanese, my J-pop class again, I'm planning on... Um, Planning on, uh, yeah, definitely including some shonen knife in there and some other, <laughs> some other uh, books, some of the other books uh, in the Japan Thirty Three and the Third series. I love the um, Cowboy Bebop book. I love mm-hmm. the Totoro book. Um, I'm really hoping to come out with a YMO book soon because oh, be YMO nice. is just one of those groups that has so much to talk about. Yeah, yeah they're sort of they're like another they're like. Like you know, like uh, Hibari, they're like another like foundation in Japan. Yeah, and you know Sakamoto, he's he's around and all these different. He's like I see him in commercials for health insurance nowadays. Yes. Really in Japan? Yeah, oh, that's yeah. So funny. He's always in like, commercials. I was like, what are you Funniest doing? Health dude? insurance? Wasn't he battling cancer recently? Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. It's, it's kind of like if you saw Philip Glass doing at. Uh, State Farm, right? Well, was, again, when I first went to like Tokyo in '89, the person I noticed on the billboards was John Lurie selling coffee. Oh, oh yeah, that's funny. So this is common, like you know, every you know, famous Western celebrity, underground as well as overground, mm-hmm. seems like they end up doing a commercial in Japan. Yeah, well, uh, what's it, Tommy Lee? Uh, Tommy Lee Jones, is that right? Yeah. He's still big in the coffee business in Japan. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, I, 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 so I'm presuming you know of uh, Hosono's, Hiromi's work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's, he has an interesting relationship between uh, the West and Japanese music as well. Mm-hmm. well. I think Yellow Magic Orchestra in general has, like, yeah, a really interesting relationship uh, with, you know, like... Japan West dichotomies and like interrogating those and um, I think that I, I even mentioned them I think in a in note in my Shonen Knife book because the sort of way that YMO comments on Orientalism and sort of tongue in cheek aspect of it I think is something you can see it play in Shonen Knife again not ironic but also you know acknowledging that it's there there is there's there are these stereotypes in culture and yes. how do we relate to them as musicians is something that I think both YMO and Shonen Knight deal with. It's interesting YMO covered Firecracker, which is a song by Martin Denny, who's sort of the king of exotica music. 
Yeah. And and how exotic music is really, you know, that, this is like music made in the late, made in the 1950s to early 60s. And it's portraying Asia as the Orient. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like exotic, like vacation music. It's, it's, a, it's sort of like, um, and of course it's totally racist. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but it's also, you know, it's how Americans identify with another culture in a way. You know, it's, it's, it's a strange relationship. But it's very interesting that an Asian band, such as YMO, will acknowledge or, in a sense, comment, I guess, on Exotica by doing this, you know, this, this Martin Denny piece. Mm. Yeah, well, it's like I saw the in the David Bowie exhibit. I was traveling. I saw it in Japan, and um, you know, it was packed. The Bowie exhibit was packed. I was there. Oh yeah, so maybe maybe I guess we went to the same <laughs> exhibit. Yeah, so I was yeah, like, you, did. you know, some some people have criticized David Bowie for his exoticisms and stuff, but you know, I'm a hardcore Bowie fan. I don't see anything yeah. wrong yeah, with him ever. I love. I'm like he, the man. man oh yeah, I love. I love him. So that was kind of. It's it really cool to see the exhibit in Tokyo. I it's really interesting, you know, because I'm sure this is not the same in, in in other cities. But they had like a whole room with this uh, 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 Beat Takashi and yeah. talking about Bowie. Um, yeah, it, it was translated in English. It was English subtitles. But I sort of doubt that they had that part of the exhibit in. Yeah, I can't. I don't think. I think that was like a Japan specific yeah. thing. Yeah, um, thing. So it was really. Yeah, that was really cool. Kim, this is going to be helpful for you to edit, huh? <laughs> no, this is all interesting. <laughs> we always go off topic. It's, it's a procedure here at Book Music. <laughs> well, you know, it's the tangents that are often super interesting anyway, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I again, um, I just, I, I really, really found your book really fascinating. Not even interesting is a small word. Fascinating is the, uh, is the terminology <laughs> here. And uh, Happy Hour by Brooke McCorkle Okazaki. We really appreciate you being a guest here, and um, and thank you so much. And we're looking. I'm looking forward. We're. I think we're both looking forward. To your blog there in Japan. Oh, right? definitely. That's <laughs> super interesting. We'll have you back for sure. Oh, well, it's, it's going to get finished someday. And thank you so much for having me. I'm honored that you read the book. Uh, sometimes, you know, you write these things and you're like, is anyone even going to read it? Does anyone care? So it, it really means a lot to me that um, somebody, somebody read it and reached out and found it uh-huh, fascinating. Definitely. And I'm sure that many of our listeners will be going out and buying it. <laughs> well, yes. I sure hope so. If nothing else, they should give a listen to some Shonen Knife and uh, yeah, that'll I'm cheer sure we have up. a lot of Shonen Knife fans in our in our uh, listenership. Yes. Great. All right. Well, everybody, thanks so much for listening to Book Music. Next time, we're actually going to be doing another thirty-three and a third because sometimes they just release a ton of thirty-three and a thirds that we want to read. Yes. This one is uh, Carol King's Tapestry. It's a brand new thirty-three and a third by Lauren Glass. Um, so that should be uh, definitely interesting because Tosh and I have different takes on this album. Yes. <laughs> so that'll be fun. So. Oh, yes. um, Follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter for all the latest news. And we've got playlists for every episode on Spotify and Apple Music. So I think we're just going to link to your YouTube playlist. 
Brooke, because that was so good. Oh, no, that's great. Yeah, no, I would have made a Spotify playlist or something, but yeah, like we can find a lot of the stuff. So yeah. I think we'll use your list if that's okay. We just, I mean, we'll put a link to it on Super. our website. So yeah, you can find links to everything on our website at bookmusic.com, B-O-O-K-M-U-S-I-K.com. So thank you, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.